Hi, this is Dr. MJ coming to you from beautiful Boston, Massachusetts. This is the Women in Dentistry podcast where we feature women in dentistry making waves and leading the industry through the next decade. I am your host, Dr. Mary Jane Hanlon, a former dental assistant, dental hygienist, and now dentist. I'm very pleased to introduce you today to Dr. Claudia Kotka. Dr. Kotka is a three-time graduate of the University of Michigan, where she received a Bachelor of Science Chemistry degree and a major in Cellular Molecular Biology, a Master of Public Health and Toxicology, and a Doctor of Dental Surgery. Dr. Kotka is an international lecturer, aesthetic restorative dentist, and founded the Washington Institute for Dentistry and Laser Surgery in Washington, D.C. Metro a private practice institute with a focus on technology and interdisciplinary smile reconstruction within facial neurological and skeletal coordinates. Since 2001, she has been involved in federal legislation and represented among the American Dental Association, American Academy of Oral Medicine as a spokesperson and a dental expert on Capitol Hill. She's testified before the United States Congress and has appeared on national networks, including Cyrus XM Doctors Radio, ABC News, and NBC News as dentist and toxicologist health expert. She serves as an editor and reviewer in various journals and as a fellow of the American Academy of Oral Medicine, the International College of Dentists, Pierre Fouchard Academy, and is a member of the International College of Prosthodontists. It is now my pleasure to bring you to my interview with Dr. Claudia Kotka. Claudia, thank you so much for being here today. I am so excited to share you with our audience and can't wait to hear about your story and how you got into dentistry. So without any further ado, please get started with your story and then we'll start asking some questions and and dig a little bit deeper. Well, Dr. Mary Jane Hanlon, I hope I pronounced your name correctly. I think in international, I think we learn to be, of course, challenged. by the uh, various different uh, backgrounds, and that's always enriching. But I like to just say, first of all, I am especially honored and privileged to be interviewed by you and on this particular platform, knowing very well uh, your historic, of course, longitudinal credentials, experience, and also ongoing endeavors in dentistry, in the profession of oral sciences, and, you know, these type of accolades that uh, inspire uh, individuals and colleagues, including myself, to move forward and to propel forward. Pertaining to your question, uh, of course, here I'm saying hello from Washington, D.C., Metro. Um, However, I was born in Romania, and uh, my story uh, with dentistry really starts then at about the age of five years old. I really can't say it precisely, but I uh, found myself saying to someone, when I'm going to be a dentist, I will do this. And my first recollection of thoughts of dentistry was essentially um, observing very keenly and closely my existing dentist at the time, engaging with a patient, a child, who basically wasn't particularly fond of the long needle that uh, she had had to utilize at the time. Of course, this uh, was a long time ago in a very different Romania than it is now. At the time, it was, of course, uh, limited by certain uh, political uh, constraints and uh, communism was rampant. So, um, of course, for me, it was just a natural, I would say, a particle of, um, you know, of who I was. It was sort of like oxygen. 
I had, of course, in, uh, been also started to do the, um, gymnastics when I was very young. So that was naturally a very, I would say, um, attractive dream to remain a uh, gymnast. However, dentistry just uh, really came close and personal immediately in the same sentence. And so um, from then on, once I had recognized that and it was really in a moment's notice, I took it very seriously. And everything that I ever did was within the context of pursuing that dream. Wow. Five years old, you really knew at five years old that you wanted to be a dentist. I think that's the youngest age I've, I've heard that somebody realized what they were going to do. Yeah, so don't pin me to five, but it was basically around that age, five, six, something like that. And um, it was, um, you know, we are very unique individuals. And uh, like you said earlier, um, you know, we are all um, sculpted in different ways. And um, there's no one that has been before like each of us and will never come like each of us. So, um, you know, within that spectrum, there are, of course, um, strengths and weaknesses. My weakness, particularly at the time, was that I was in a very limited environment. I really didn't know how that was going to transpire later. And uh, of course, uh, you know, dreams were in question, particularly by the party members who were watching our family transition out of Romania to United States. And, you know, some looked with a, almost a, um, a view of, um, you know, you've lost your, your footing. You know, where will you go? What will become of you? You know, um, their perspective was that, you know, socialism was the platform of uh, the elite and so you know as blessed as we were in Romania with the a lot of the constraints we had of course because my my father was not a party member so we have certainly incurred additional uh, consequences due to that nevertheless you know came to United States and we're very blessed to be here and welcomed here as a citizen later and um, you know was given even more of opportunities that uh, I could have ever imagined um, or even my own parents could have ever imagined because uh, we know that um, this country is exceedingly um, rich and really blessed with uh, not just resources but uh, with a vast amount of um, thought process, principles, and uh, history of experience. So did you come at a very young age and, and go to dental school here in the United States, or did you go to dental school in Romania and then come? So my father had defected in 85, and so in 87, uh, we had the, uh, of course, uh, it was a miracle that we had uh, reunited the family abroad so quickly, since it was really, I would say, um, quite... Um, rare, it was a rarity to wait a short amount of time. Typically, families waited up to 10 years to reunite abroad. So our family reunited within a year and a half, and that was in Michigan. My father was very keen on Michigan, hence the, the Michigan um, training for 10 years. So um, it was, um, you know, it, it had happened in a way that really could not have been, I would say, completely controlled or planned. But um, it was, uh, as I said, it was a miracle. Serendipity, yep. Very good. So you did dental school in Michigan and undergrad at Michigan? I have studied, yes. I did all my training in University of Michigan, all three programs, undergraduate and cellular molecular biology. I have a chemistry degree. Michigan is one of the three, was one of the three universities at the time who actually had a degree in chemistry as an undergrad. 
And so I did honors chemistry and uh, my thesis was with the um, School of Dentistry. Uh, my chemistry thesis was with the School of Dentistry on um, the project um, with the late Jonathan Ship, Dr. Jonathan Ship, on um, parotid sparing saliva in chemo uh, radiation and therapy patients. So, um, and some of that actually uh, made it into the seven or so posters at the IADR um, subsequent years later, and of course, some, some publications. And then I, of course, in the interim, I had done um, public health, environmental health sciences, toxicology. I was interested in clinical toxicology because I was very driven by innovation. As a young, uh, I would say, uh, again, some of the inherent characteristics, perhaps of the genetic makeup, um, um, propelled me, of course, in mathematics, as well as um, this aspect of mechanism and physiological mechanism, specifically understanding why things occur, how things occur, the mechanism by which it happens. And we know that from the core sciences, as well as from mathematics and physics, we know that there is one, one real thing and then everything else is you know can come close to that but it's no match for the the truth so that's what science really i would say gives us as clinicians an incredible amarantarium in order to execute the best options uh, for our patients at the time they present and so um all that was i had the privileges as well as and the honor to do that at university of michigan and they gave me an incredible opportunity to first of all um you know, step into the hospital dentistry volunteer opportunity. Once a week, I essentially hung out around, you know, a plethora of amazing clinics at University of Michigan, you know, dermatology, uh, pain, uh, TMD, uh, you know, and of course, University of Michigan has such a, I would say, enrichment of um, international visiting scholars or clinicians from all over the world. So you essentially, you know, I was sort of like that fly, you know, in the room and just hearing numerous different uh, recommendations and thoughts on uh, complex situations for 10 years, up to 10 years. And I had, and by that time, I actually had, of course, graduated from University of Michigan with a DDS and then started practicing. So I felt incredibly propelled and incredibly equipped because of that. Now, the toxicology choice was, of course, very, I would say, not as welcomed, uh, you know, by the um, dental community, partly because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding uh, in that, and we can go into detail later, but my interest in understanding and, and really bringing um, this particular science to dentistry and clinical therapeutics is because of the fact that to some degree as clinicians, we really have to understand how the host response uh, can be modified. And we understand that and we depict that by understanding how things fail. And if we understand how things fail, then we know how to circumvent that failure. And that's called therapeutics. And so in the, um, at the Institute here, what has been incredibly, I, think, I would say, opportunistic and unique about it is that we marry that combination between understanding mechanism and looking in real time to the host response demands and helping the body essentially heal itself. So um, that was really the motivating factor there. So how did you go from Michigan to Washington? Tell us a little bit about that part of the journey. What led you there? Yes, of course. So that was a very incredible journey itself as well. I had deferred law school. Of course, I was interested in innovation, as mentioned earlier. And so one of my areas of interest was 
understanding intellectual property protection and patents and protecting technology primarily uh, also because um, within the innovation platform one has to understand timing and strategy and so um, having um, had that opportunity to also work as a law clerk in an IP firm in, um, in Michigan in an arbor at the time during my master's I um, you know uh, had um, it was a actually it was actually a uh, uh, interesting funny story um, I had of course applied for the locker position but because I wasn't in law school nor had I had any application to law school though I was hired on the spot they would not give me the salary that it was listed for they would essentially give me I think something like, I don't know, 12 to something dollars or something along those lines when it was listed for 30 something dollars. And so I said, well, you know, why is that? He said, well, you're not, you know, you're not technically in law school. I said, well, if I get into law school, will you raise the salary? You know, that was yes. So basically I had to go and apply for, you know, obtain the LSATs, apply to law school, actually traveled to Boston, to one of the law schools there as well. Yeah, which one? I think it was a New England School of Law. Yes. Right down the street from Tufts. Exactly. This was a, a while ago, a long time ago. And a number of other law schools, of course. This wasn't a, you know, uh, I would say competitive um, streak from a perspective of, I had already done, you know, been in school for at least seven, eight years. And I knew that I was going to, of course, pursue dentistry because that was my dream. So law school was a, an attractive uh, combination, should I have been, you know, shortened in some capacity. But to make a long story short and answer your question, from that um, experience, um, ASDA leadership needed a policy extern on short notice who had uh, apparently had to fill the position. And so they saw that my application or somehow they found out that I had, I, I don't know, maybe I had done something different with ASDA. I'm not sure how they... Um, process this, but um, they basically said, you know, you have a background in law, I mean, you applied to law school and you deferred, would you be interested in being a national policy here in Washington, D.C.? So I said, yes, of course. And so I came that first summer. So having come um, from Michigan to Washington, uh, at the time I had joined the team, uh, Frank McLaughlin uh, was there, the ad tech chair, Frank Ryan, Mike Graham, of course, Dorothy Moss had had the office at the time. Uh, and so I really had an opportunity to witness front and personal the experiences of representing clinic and clinical thought position on Capitol Hill, engaging with interest parties, various different groups, organizations, and very different platforms. And so for me, that was the process of how innovation as platform with respect to improving access to care, but also improving therapeutic improvement for patients in a mass, um, mass distribution. Wow, amazing background. So did you ever finish law school? I never started, I deferred. You didn't start, okay. Deferred, but it was, you know, it would be something that would be very interesting, of course, to my sister's an attorney, so so we will definitely have that, um, you know, that representation in, in the family circles in terms of conversation and intellectual challenge. I would say, it, you know, the aspect of intellectual uh, protection and the positioning of uh, 
improvement, you know, plays an incredible role in terms of the impact. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, not just understanding the timing aspect, but the, the strategy, you know, looking at different participants within the healthcare marketplace or the healthcare sector, which include academia, R&D, industry, the consumer and uh, private equity within the business aspect, this, uh, the business sector. And you having an MBA understand that very well and have, I'm sure, uh, engaged in um, various different ways to promote the position for correct innovation. Uh, you know, in the most, I would say, efficient platform. We know there's a ton of innovations that are getting attention, which, you know, may not necessarily be, I would say, as attractive or they're not as effective as others. And while others that are incredibly necessary and incredibly demanding, and there's a major need for them, they never make it to the marketplace. Right. And that's a very sad thing to see as a clinician. One of the, my biggest concerns as we head into the next 10 years is artificial intelligence. Not that it's happening or that we're doing some amazing things with it, because I think we are. What concerns me is what they're going to do with our data and how we protect our data and make sure that it's scrubbed well enough that you know you can't pinpoint or isolate a particular person based on the data that you're reading so th that is truly my biggest concern from an innovation standpoint as we move ahead in the next 10 years is making sure that we have the policies in place that are set to protect the the person the individual and you know what are they going to be doing with it and limit certain things for example I am concerned about dental insurance companies, you know, tracking dentists by what they do and how they do things. And I know it's happening already. However, you know, what are they doing with that information? As long as it's supporting the patient outcomes, okay, I'm okay with that. But if it's supporting limiting the payments to dentists based on what their procedures percentage of procedures are, I have true concerns about that fact. And I know that that's happening because it just is. That's how they're, they're working the system. Of course. So when I was recently in Japan at the International Standardization Organization, I'm a U.S. delegate to uh, within, you know, within the TC106 dentistry. And so I actually presented a new working group proposal on this very topic. And what I, um, of course, uh, was highlighting is that it's not just the privacy of the data of the patient that we're collecting. So let's say, for instance, technologies like, you know, di digital equipment that captures data in 3D. So it's not just the, the patient data, but it's also the uh, providers and the clinicians um, modification um, in, uh, basically intellectual property, trade secret or improvement that once it leaves in the cloud system by virtue of third party software or even, you know, direct parties uh, uh, ownership of the company, that data is no longer the sweat equity of the clinician. And that has incredible amplified impact on the intellectual property system, which United States has uh, essentially, I would say, is at the core of competition, stands as the core of competition, and honor and protection for the um, 
contribution of the individual, of the inventor. And so those two aspects, you know, one of the recommendations I, I made a proposal for, and I believe we will be working on that in that direction, would be to actually require a C-level drive as, a, as an option instead of essentially taking that data and essentially giving it wherever or sending it wherever. And so I know that with today's technologies, the local C drives don't necessarily have to be in the same platform or network as they are presenting, or perhaps historically, but they can certainly be you know, cons constructed in, in similar forms. But again, you know, not, not have it been given to third parties, but rather have it, you know, be essentially under the sole jurisdiction and perfection of the clinician and, and having that remain very locally. So, um, you know, you bring up an excellent point in this. Absolutely. So are you in private practice now? So do you do you balance private practice with your lecturing? Yes. So I've always been in private practice here in DC as well as in DC Metro. And um, simultaneous to that, I have essentially parlayed and, and move forward with all the opportunities that I've been given in policy, regulatory uh, lectures, of course, as well as uh, innovation, uh, consulting, and, um, you know, also advocacy for consumers in terms of uh, being upfront and personal in the media. And we know with the COVID-19 example, how important that is to have accurate scientific information be shared with, uh, with the public. Just on a side note, personal side, have you had any interactions with any of the vaccine companies being, you know, the vaccines being developed? Have you been tracking a lot of those? You know, there's so much concern about getting a vaccine, but I will tell you, I'm really hesitant to, to go for the first one because you just don't know. Um, you know, they're rushing to market and, uh, you know, you want to make sure that the safety structure has been in place because, you know, sometimes the vaccines don't always work. And I, Absolutely. You make, you make several points that are, I think, uh, you know, uh, crucial for us to, to recognize. First of all, the solution is, is really not vaccinations, particularly when you're dealing with a pathogen that is not on the grade of, uh, I would say, uh, tropism like HIV is, like polio. Uh, and some other, for instance, viruses which uh, actually are oncogenic or have oncogenic potential. When we're speaking with pathogen that uh, essentially uh, only perhaps weaken the immune system in such a way where the comorbidities have a manifestation, this is what we're, we're dealing with here, you know, um, the appropriate uh, uh, therapeutic solution includes, first of all, identifying the cause, which is the comorbidities aspect. And second of all, of course, in the crisis, uh, incorporating a multifactorial solution, again, based on mechanism with respect to the antiviral combination of whatever, you know, pathogenic opportunistic infection might, might occur uh, or, or, you know, might have been contributed with the aspect, of course, of having the right solution be implemented at the right time. The fact that we were not given as, uh, access to our patients and our patients being essentially taken from us in terms of having those type of um, access to minimize periodontal infections, to minimize abscess, to minimize, you know, we know the oral systemic uh, plays such an incredible role in, you know, overall in the systemic protection of the immune response, you know, and that's, that's really where the bulk of the focus ought to be and needs to be. Now, with respect to the vaccinations, 
We know that there are certain populations that can be at risk. Those are very far and few in between with respect to the pathogen we're speaking on. But um, if I were to, for instance, and I have um, followed, uh, and I've been always in contact, I would say, here in Washington, D.C., with various different groups, including there's been a long type hype on vaccinations. I mean, when I first came to Washington, they wanted to do a, you know, one of the vaccination on against caries. And, you know, one says to you, you know, to, to oneself, well, what, what is, you know, is, is it really gaining tracking vis-a-vis -vis the aspect of oral, um, you know, hygiene implementation, as well as with the appropriate intervention that carry risks that are, cannot be compared uh, with the, the risk for vaccination. So looking at vaccinations, we have to look at the mechanism and logic in which the science has been implemented. That's really where the answer lies. And we know that in the last, I would say, maybe 20 years where there has been a push for vaccination primarily or maybe secondarily to keep vaccination pipelines going just because globalization does present another layer to the solution. But nevertheless, we do have to still honor and respect the fact that we are unique individuals. Our profiles are unique at the same time. The geoposition of the communities are unique. One cannot really transfer a certain generation of something to another, you know, geoposition just because it seemed that we are human beings and we are homo sapiens. So, you know, I think that um, these type of conversations ought to occur on a platform in front of the public with a, uh, I would say, uh, an equal representation from an interdisciplinary perspective and I do look forward as a public health specialist, of course, I look forward to having public health incorporate the clinicians, which right now I would say for the past maybe 10 some years have really lost their voice in the public eye as well as on Capitol Hill. And that's one of the reasons why I would say was encouraged to come to Washington DC personally. I couldn't agree more. One of the things that I think is an open opportunity for us as dentists is, you know, in the primary care medicine aspect, and I see this more in our interprofessional education that's happening now, in the primary care aspect, you see that very few medicine residents are going into primary care. They're going into specialty care, right? That there's not very many that want to just do primary medicine, be the doc you know, that everybody goes to see in a small community. That's not happening anymore. And I think this is an opportunity for dentistry in that there's so many more things that we can do that would expand our career options that we should be working on at the national, state, and local level, I think, in pursuing with more energy. Because I think that now is the time, you know, diabetes can be tested in, in practices, in dental practices. Flu shots can be given in dental practices. You know, so many things that we can do that are mundane in the medicine world and, you know, has been relegated to, you know, CVS Pharmacy or Walgreens. You know, it's not something that we can't do. We should absolutely be able to, to do it. So it's just you know, changing our rules and regulations at, at a state level and getting the push that we need for the advocacy behind that. Do you agree? Yes, uh, you bring up an excellent point again, because we have seen, for instance, dentists are primary care providers, their first year, correct? And we have seen literally at the municipality level in the COVID example that 
our patients were not allowed to come see us. We did not have access to our patients. Now this occurred both for physicians as well as for the dentists and we are all first responders. So you saw, and I, I was really watching this with terror, how it is possible that we have gained such tremendous you know, progress and impact of leadership with the appropriate authoritative expert opinion and yet watched in a matter of months have municipalities, non-experts or public health officials suddenly replace the expert opinion and cut off, cut off access from patient and intervene in the patient-provider relationship. And if that doesn't speak to every individual at every level, then I have to say that we've lost sight of what is right and wrong. Oh my gosh, words to my, that ring in my heart. I am so excited that you said that because quite honestly, I have said I am active in, in my local um, state society. And I have said, I, we are never closing dental offices ever again in the state, ever again. Not only because of the impact to the patients, but the economic impact to the entire community has been significant not just our industry, but overall in general with everyone. We have the opportunity to keep people safe and we did. I know the school kept 650 patients, you know, during that 12 week span of time that we were closed out of Tufts Medical Center emergency room. If we had not been open, those patients would have clogged up that emergency room and kept patients waiting that were needing to be treated, right? That, that may have been really sick with COVID and needed to get into that emergency room. So our services are needed. We can, and we have shown that we can protect ourselves and we protect our patients at the highest level. You know, so much so that it's very minimal the amount of exposures that a dental practice has, has seen that, you know, that affected patients. So, you know, at this point, I think it's critically important for us to advocate on our own behalf to say, look, this can never happen again, number one. Number two, we can do so much more. We need to update our rules and regulations and get on board with where we are. Secondarily, you know, as an educator, you know, one of the things that I have been extremely frustrated with is the live patient exam. I know that you probably did your boards on a live patient. I did a lot my boards, both hygiene and dentistry, on a live patient, the time has come to stop that. There's so many other ways that we can test competency, and I quite honestly believe competency belongs in the classroom, in the dental school, performed day in and day out on patients, not by some outside agency that, that is going to test on a particular procedure for that day. Competency is gained by doing the treatments over and over and over again. Sure, are we perfect at it when we graduate? Absolutely not. And nor are we ever going to be when we graduate. But are we competent? And can we provide safe care to the patient? Absolutely, positively. That can be judged at the school level. You want to test on a mannequin that you, I can make a, a nice, you know, DO prep or an MO prep, no problem. Happy to do that on a mannequin, but not on a live patient. You know, there, there's so many wrong things about, you know, not doing comprehensive care for patients and doing these one-offs that just doesn't make sense anymore. 
from a, an ethical standpoint anyway. Mm -hmm. Yes, I understand that there's a uh, massive changes in, in the curriculum and you as you are involved, of course, that uh, talks in the position that uh, leadership that you uh, you have been involved for this last um, seven plus years, um, you know, you will know that uh, what challenges. But I have to say that uh, I would say that logic has to prevail. Common sense has to prevail in that, you know, the individual while learning is best suited to be exposed to situations while still under the umbrella of adjunct, of supervision, of help, of input, uh, rather than uh, just a, uh, you know, uh, check, check, and uh, you know we you know we essentially run into situations that we uh, hear about where of course um, we are you know we are tremendously i would say blessed and gifted in the united states as compared to some of the other alternatives uh, across the globe yeah i'm going to switch gears a little bit that was okay to ask you some personal questions and you know my first one is What's a single best piece of advice that you have received in your career? Well, they're actually, you know, they're forever ongoing. So I have to say that uh, they're numerous. Um, but I would say that, um, you know, the one that, you know, regurgitates and, 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 you know, and revisits almost automatically is, uh, you know, be yourself and, and really know who you are and recognize who you are and accept it that comes with a lot of liabilities and it comes with a lot of responsibilities. Privilege comes with a lot of responsibilities. And so, you know, I've been given tremendous uh, encouragement, you know, uh, since I was very young, um, direct and indirect. I myself, I would say I am a innately uh, passionate individual and, um, you know, we all have our talents and I've, um, you know, I've, I've always looked to those, um, to those advantages as responsibilities uh, where, um, you know, I would say my nightmare would be to bury my talents and not be able to execute them or, or share them or utilize them. And so I would say that um, that's, I was in a nutshell is, is what uh, always brings things back into focus and uh, incorporates why uh, there's uh, a need for progress and why there has to be a commitment to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Has there been somebody in your life that's really impacted you greatly and how? Yes. Again, many individuals I've had the privilege of, um, you know, in, in dentistry, of course, I've had the privilege of uh, knowing individuals from all over the world. Uh, I was invited to actually to do an externship with uh, Dr. Stephen uh, Porter at the Eastman Dental Institute when I was yet still an undergraduate in chemistry and still in molecular biology. Good for you. Congratulations. It's amazing. And Dr. Um, of course, again, the, uh, the late Dr. Christian Scully was also there. I had also the privilege of attending the, uh, the third workshop on, H on oral manifestations of HIV. I mean, at so many times I was really surrounded by pioneers in the field various different disciplines. And with that, uh, having been exposed to those opportunities and open doors, I was very naturally curious. And, um, you know, I appreciated very much and relished in the opportunity to ask questions and to listen to their input. On the personal side, and I think that it's equally important, if not even more profiling, because there are going to be obstacles and are going to be difficult 
portions of the journey, which oftentimes uh, we find ourselves quite alone to one degree or another, involves, of course, my father and uh, my uh, grandfather, um, Mihai Avram. And uh, both have, I would say, uh, quite unique characteristics, sometimes juxtaposed to, to each other. Um, and, um, and yet, you know, I'm a composition of, of both. Uh, so um, it has been, I would say, propelling, equally propelling to be motivated and inspired and encourage and um, execute from a conversation of a, I would say, level of leadership that is, uh, you know, on the levels of elite in uh, expertise, let's say. However, equally compelling is to speak with individuals who are wise and humble and uh, compile the composition of what it takes to implement the necessary uh, next uh, move or the necessary next progress. That's part of the equation. And so uh, as human beings, um, I think it's um, necessary and we are forced to recognize that. Absolutely. Wow. Did you have any obstacles when you came to this country that you had to overcome? Did you know English when you came here? Is that something that you had to learn when you got here? Yes, actually. I had only finished fifth grade in Romania. I did not speak English. Um, I had very limited knowledge of the English language and I had studied British English, so I had a thicker accent than I probably do now, but it was very limited. I um, essentially the administration placed me in Spanish class because the Latin background, uh, of course, was a unification between the Romanian language uh, structure as well as Spanish. So I actually learned Spanish before I actually learned English. And that helped me, of course, tremendously with my grades and um, ability to understand and communicate. Nevertheless, um, Linguistics is something that is of um, lightness um, and uh, challenge. So uh, it becomes, I would say, a mental exercise <laughs> to, to have to, uh, to engage. So learning new languages are always, uh, you know, always something that uh, flexes, something that may have been dormant for a little bit of time. You know, interesting uh, question for you. So I've had somebody share with me several times, actually, that uh, when they dream, they dream in their native language. So do you dream in Romanian? <laughs> well, sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. I have to say that when I was learning classical Greek at University of Michigan, I was dreaming in Greek, in classical <laughs> Greek. So I was not only dreaming in classical Greek, I was waking up and I was speaking in classical Greek. So, and I was, you know, quite, I was very frustrated because classical Greek follows very different, I would say, sequence of the of, of latin to some degree anyway and so um anyway it was it was the battle of the neurons for the moment <laughs> battle of the neurons i love it i love it so when you reflect back on your life do you feel like you were born with a lot of confidence or do you think that that was something that you've gained over time because to me you, you you know obviously very confident very accomplished woman you know, is that something that you have had to work on or is that something that came naturally to you? I would say that I was gifted uh, with confidence. Now, I say that with a great deal of humility because I know well what is required uh, when something is gifted. And I take that very seriously. At the same time, a great deal of confidence is also, I would say, produced from the experience and the journey that uh, is part of the equation. 
albeit some of which is not necessarily sought out, and I'll explain. Many times I would say my confidence that I held naturally was misinterpreted for arrogance. And, um, you know, I was tremendously frustrated when I was dealing with the consequence of misinterpretation or misunderstanding where it wasn't so. And I thought, not only do I have to deal with what I'm actually up against, that obstacle, but now I've got additional things that I've got to parlay and, you know, and, and clean up essentially. And I found it very frustrating that, you know, that type of, I would say, particularly the type of interpretation or the type of experience was among the elite, among the intellectuals. I could understand it when you're dealing with someone who might be a little bit, um, you know, limited in understanding or intimidated or whatever. And I myself, of course, have, uh, of course, uh, you know, been, you know, faced uh, giants in my life, but it doesn't mean that they stay there. So, you know, it's, um, first of all, I think confidence is absolutely necessary to have a compelling ability to focus and to execute. Without that, I, I believe that there is a risk for a degree of, uh, significant degree of error. But, uh, and so within that aspect of confidence uh, comes a great deal of humility and uh, the practice and the application of that as, as appropriate. Simultaneous to that, um, it, it, does, it does have to be accompanied by courage, exceeding courage. And I think that that is really what has fostered and fueled my confidence. I really can't say I can muster up courage. You know, um, many times it's just there or it's not. Often it's there. But, um, you know, granted in terms of uh, the application of the strategy or the, uh, the development or uh, understanding the strategy uh, for planning purposes or even in a crisis, you know, it's fight or flight. So, you know, that there is, you know, there's a well, um, you know, great reflection of uh, the physiological uh, input that is there, but cannot also be controlled. So oftentimes, you know, pulling back from that flow of energy, from that flow of, of, of what is within and what comes forth, and whether that's being a talent, that's being in a skill set or an affinity that you can't let go and an instinct, you know, that um, those are the, the privileges of what makes us uh, tremendously uh, gifted. Yeah, very nice, very nice. Do you have somebody in your life that really inspires you? Like, you know, we all, I think we all have people in our life that we look up to and, and admire and even more so in our younger years. But is there somebody that has inspired you? It doesn't have to be significantly in dentistry, just somebody, anybody that has inspired your life. Certainly. So among the many, um, I would say, um, I um, had already mentioned my father and uh, my grandfather. My grandfather, for instance, was an incredibly wise individual. Of course, um, in terms of the academic education, uh, you know, that there wasn't a... Um, you know, an established uh, um, achievement there. However, you know, he had uh, been through the war uh, in, uh, in Romania. He, uh, you know, he had uh, managed uh, large uh, holdings, you know, on, in, in the countryside and in, in mountain areas. So, you know, you, you look at someone who looks at the, uh, what has been entrusted to them and you see how... Um, how carefully they analyze things, how respectful they are for 
you know, the commodity and for the responsibilities they have to themselves, to the family, to the community. And um, I have to say that that's really where I first tasted my, you know, great deal of dose of wisdom, which, uh, you know, even though I couldn't necessarily verbalize it at the time as a, you know, four or five-year-old, and yet, or six-year-old still, uh, you know, that's what I was always searching for and I had a great affinity for. So uh, as a child, I loved being around older people. Uh, you know, I didn't, I have to say that uh, with the children, I enjoyed being with children if, as long as we did activities that, you know, which were engaging. But I had a very short span in terms of uh, repetition for something like that. I would rather prefer to be among adults or among particularly be, you know, the elderly because they spoke so deeply about things. They had such an incredible insight and perspective. And so, you know, um, I'm sure that uh, through your uh, um, MBA training, uh, you know, we obviously have to look at healthcare as a commodity. And we know that healthcare is a very unique commodity which cannot be treated as any other commodity, whether it be in gold or et cetera. And so, um, and then of course my, my father, um, he was a, you know, a gifted, uh, a gifted individual, incredibly courageous, uh, stood against, uh, uh, you know, the uh, principles or, or I should say stood on principles against the, um, the communist, uh, communist platform and uh, was not afraid to speak the truth. So I've watched him you know, uh, on many occasions, uh, take a stand when others could not speak for themselves uh, or chose not to. And so I had a very early on lesson in, in courage, but uh, granted, I, I have to say that I am privileged to have had a genetic component of that <laughs> as an inheritance. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So is there something that people would be surprised to know about you? Well, quite so. And I think the first thing that comes to mind is that, um, you know, I'm equally uh, creative or extremely creative as mathematical and, and analytical. And I don't, and those are actually at quite extremes. So oftentimes I think individuals either uh, understand one or the other. Rarely they, uh, they incorporate both. The other an interesting part would be very, I think, relevant for our audience, and I hope that is an encouraging lesson, is that I was voted by my dental class that I would be the most likely individual who would hold a non-dental career, meaning that I would engage in corporation, you know, then corporate and business and something that would not involve, you know, clinical and of course, they, you know, a lot of my classmates saw the opportunities that I had engaged in terms of coming to Washington, D.C. during my dental school years. They knew about my toxicology background and in the aspect of technology and innovation. However, you know, it does stand to prove that, you know, even though people can misunderstand you, you know, I actually have had the privilege and uh, I have the history to prove it that, I've engaged in more comprehensive dental journey and dental experience from a clinical perspective, innovation, regulatory, than I would say most dentists probably in a lifetime. So, you know, it's, um, it goes to show that um, not everybody can understand accurately at the time they're given, perhaps in time. 
and uh, there has to be allowances for that and patience. But nevertheless, that is not something that should be limiting. Absolutely. Have you had an aha moment in your life where you realized you're exactly where you were supposed to be, that you're doing exactly what you, you are meant to do? I mean, you know when you have those moments and you recognize them. So I know you'll know if you've had one. Of course, many, many. And I have, you know, throughout the days. I mean, I, was, I, could, I will mention two, uh, given the, uh, the spectrum of audience that, um, who will probably be watching. One includes, for instance, the clinical experience of patients. And so, you know, one of the most common questions I get when I meet someone in dentistry is, I don't understand the toxicology background. I don't understand why toxicology outside of is amalgam toxic, which of course I've testified that it's not toxic in the way that dentists have utilized it. So, but um, during, the exp during the aspect of diagnosis, and I've spoken about this a little bit earlier, very briefly, with respect to looking at the oral systemic profile of a patient, understanding the mechanism. I cannot tell you case after case after case, which comes up and, you know, in, in the highlight point of, you know, under, you know, that mechanism, this is how that works because of what I learned during my studies, you know, during my toxicology training, as well as, of course, the research that came after and the ongoing uh, update that's part of the equation of why I am successful here at the Institute uh, in helping patients uh, with respect to uh, difficult um, conditions, some of which, of course, uh, uh, you know, have had uh, perhaps uh, difficulty in reaching a therapeutic, you know, stabilized effect of clinical outcome, which they've tried in other, in, in, in other uh, practices, for instance. So, that always comes up regularly. The other is, has to deal with, I mentioned earlier that um, one of the compelling um, or including in my, my, my interest in coming to Washington DC or returning to Washington DC after being here for the, you know, during that summer interim, my first year of dental school uh, was essentially to coordinate a, a different um, platform for a private care facility as an institute that wow. corresponds and parallels a think tank process of uh, clinical development, of clinical innovation in real time. And so, you know, um, I've mentioned this, um, you know, as, as it has come up, as opportunities have presented themselves. And, you know, it was always a, you know, nice smile, but, you know, it's sort of like, it's a Mars Venus idea, you know, it's, it's a Pluto <laughs> positioning <laughs> with respect to what we're doing. And yet, 14 years later, uh, in my conversation with uh, the dean at University of Michigan, uh, my former professor, basically, the new curriculum incorporated this part of very aspect of what we've actually done here at the Institute. And we've had the privilege of, you know, incorporating essentially the premise that clinical decision-making, you know, during patient care compels direct and indirect immediate impact at the legislative or the policy level and vice versa. And so um, I was asked, of course, to come and present. This was about two, three years ago. So it was, um, of course, uh, an incredible, uh, you know, aha uh, moment, as you said, in terms of, um, you know, having to say that, you know, the instincts, um, you know, prove themselves again, once again, accurate. And, but it took 14 years for someone to, to, to finally, you know, come and say, 
there is a connection there. And the fact that, uh, you know, it's a leading university, you know, what incredible confirmation that, um, you know, what has been identified actually is successful. So that's great. That's great. Such an intuitive way to go about something, you know, you, you had an idea and, and felt it was, it was good and, and somebody picked it up and, and now it's being used. So congratulations. That's, that's outstanding. Thank you. I think, I mean, their processing, I think, came up out of, you know, I'm sure it was a, maybe an independent, you know, parallel. However, to have a, you know, a curriculum that is starting to incorporate something that, you know, you have, you know, incorporated at the actual private level of, 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 of application and integration, uh, I would say speak tremendous um, uh, support of um, confirmation that uh, it has not been a isolated uh, element of thought, but rather is a very conducive and integrated thought process. Excellent. Excellent. So one final question, and we do have to go. I, I apologize. Our conversation has gone by so fast because it's been so engaging. But do you have a personal motto or, or saying that you live by? I have to say that when the tough gets really tough, it's the faith and action component that, uh, you know, brings me back to, to why, why I'm taking the grant. And so um, it's quite simple. You know, I have to have the, the, the belief, uh, you know, in terms of the instinct that I, I've been granted. When I've ignored it, I've suffered tremendously. So I learned that, uh, you know, that is not to be ignored. Simultaneous to that, there has to be action. And so I would say that um, that is something that um, I've not only, um, of course, uh, applied to myself. And sometimes uh, it's much more difficult uh, to listen to yourself, inspire yourself when you're going through different things, but also, of course, share it with others. As, and hopefully, you know, it, it does drive... Um, to have the impact that it should. Absolutely. Claudia, thank you so much for sharing your time with us and, and with the audience today. Uh, you have shared some amazing information and more scientific than usually the talks go, but I love bantering about that stuff. So I hope the audience in, engaged in it too. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for listening to the Women in Dentistry podcast with Dr. MJ Hanlon. If you like our show and want to know more about us, check out our website, thewomenindentistry.com, or please leave us a review on iTunes. Join us for our next episode as we bring you another amazing woman leading the way for the next generation.